Welcome to Ring of Fire. I'm Sam Cedar. Today on Ring of Fire, David Bender will join me for a discussion of the news of the week. Adam Green from the Progressive Change Campaign Committee will tell us about the progressive victories from the midterms. And Peter Moget will tell us why the SEC has failed to do their job of preventing Wall Street criminal behavior. You can follow Ring of Fire on Facebook or on Twitter at Ring of Fire Radio. Keep up with the latest progressive news on our website at ringoffireradio.com. And now you can watch Ring of Fire every Sunday at noon on Free Speech TV. And hey, remember, if you want to help support Ring of Fire, go online to ringoffireradio.com slash support to find out how. Remember, it's your support that helps keep us on the air. Joining me this week, my old friend David Bender, political director of Progressive Voices and former co-host of Ring of Fire. So, David, and again, thank you for joining us. As the political director of Progressive Voices, it is always a treat to talk to you, particularly after a, an election. I would have um, enjoyed it even that much more had it been an election that was not such so devastating for uh, Democrats. But, I mean, give me your take on it. Um, was this, uh, I mean, I think it's clear right by now that it, it was, in fact, a wave. The only uh, Senate race we have extant at this point, uh, Mary Landrieu, uh, in, uh, which will be resolved in the first week of December. But from your perspective, um, tough election. <laughs> Sam, it's always good to talk to you. Uh, it is no coincidence that this election happened a few days after Halloween, because although this may be a treat, there were a lot of tricks that were played on the American people in this election. Uh, they're, they're doing it again with this Mary Landrieu runoff. It was all about tying people to Barack Obama. Those spots are up and running again in Louisiana, if you, if you want to take a look, uh, in case you missed them. There are so many takeaways from this. Voter turnout, the effects of the Supreme Court decision that gutted part of the Voting Rights Act, students and minorities having a much harder time voting than they did uh, two years ago in close elections, and there were a lot of them, that well could be the margin of error. So we've got so much that it, it, we have to analyze and look at as to what really happened here. But right from the top line, Republicans got only 52% of the vote nationally in House races. But so many of these districts were baked in the cake from the redistricting in 2010, four years ago, when they controlled state legislatures, and they added several more now, that very few districts were competitive. There are only five Democrats now, Sam, five, that are in office from districts carried by Mitt Romney. Historically, that was never the case. People split their vote. They, they would vote for a Republican or Democrat for president, then different votes down ticket. Now it is party line, and there's a rigidity to it that is so dangerous to our democracy. But that is what the Republicans have been working to achieve, and this was an example, yet again, of how successful they've been as demagogues. And that's that's some of the takeaway. There's a lot more, but let's we can start. Well, yeah, st starting with that, I mean, that is uh, in that you can measure basically on how many districts are w what they call uh, sort of on the uh, partisan uh, voting index. And 
That really all was a function of the 2010 uh, election where uh, Republicans came into state houses, took over state houses, and uh, during the redistricting uh, from the 2010 census, they made districts that they, they basically sequestered uh, the uh, Democratic voters into, uh, d- packed them into a district. So the Democrat there is winning by an overwhelming majority. But what it does is it opens up other districts for Republicans to win by a not so overwhelming majority, but by in a majority. And so uh, a lot of these are district in. And like you say, uh, you only have five Democrats who are in seats that Mitt Romney carried uh, in, in, in 2012. And so, th- I mean, that's definitely part of the story. I, I, it's obviously not a story when it comes to the gubernatorial races that Democrats lost. It's not a story when it comes to the senatorial uh, races. You may see other um, uh, voter suppression tactics, but that redistricting is not one of them. No. And well, the voter suppression should be factored into some of what happened. It could well have been the deciding factor in Florida with the margin between Rick Scott and Charlie Crist. Indeed. Indeed. And, you know, but uh, my perspective on this, and I think, you know, that is something obviously that, um, you know, when you have the gutting of the Voting Rights Act and when you have. Um, not only the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, but uh, the Supreme Court basically refusing uh, to deal with some of these voter ID um, restrictive uh, policies in the weeks before the election. Uh, all that as, 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 as granted, you still, and I'm not the only one who's saying this, it's still very hard to say you should vote for me if I'm a Democrat because I will do X. You know, like the Democratic Party in this midterm election, it looked like a year ago they were going to be talking about income inequality. Whether or not we can argue that's the best message or not uh, is one issue. But by the time we got to the election, there was no national plank. You you had Democrats running away from either the Democrat, you know, saying... I didn't vote for, or I'm not going to tell you that I voted for the Democratic presidential candidate. I mean, come oh, on. Oh, yes. Would-be Senator uh, Lundergan Grimes in Kentucky. That was her defining moment of courage. Right. And, but that's, that was indicative of a lot of these candidates. And, you know, uh, of course, these were uh, uh, that was part of the reason why this was a di- gonna, always going to be a difficult election, because you had a lot of Democrats running in uh, red states or purple, you know, reddish in the purple Senate races, states. It was two to one, Sam. And right. that's, that's the math that happened both two years ago and now. Two, uh, two Democratic seats up for every Republican, so a third of the Senate every two years. Two years from now, it's reverse. Uh, right. 24 Republican seats up, only 10 Democratic seats. So it, math, math does play a part, but you're absolutely right. Message plays a part. And the fact that Democrats were unwilling to run as Democrats. Harry Truman said it best, if in a contest between a Republican and a Republican, the Republican always wins. Right. And that's, that's really where so many of these Democrats found themselves, is trying to pretend that they would be palatable, that they wouldn't be automatic votes for Nancy Pelosi or for Harry Reid or for Barack Obama. And you know what? Voters know that they're lying. And it, character it counts. The one thing that you give the Republicans is they said what they meant. They, they want to gut Obamacare. That's the first thing they're going to try and do 
again. They're going to try and defund it. Well, you know, I mean, from from my perspective, the fundamental problem there, too, is not so much that you have missed an opportunity to convince people who would otherwise not vote for you to vote for you. But really, you know, when you're talking about an off-year election, you need to motivate people who would be otherwise inclined to vote for you. In other words, it's not about persuasion. And there was a, a piece I saw, I guess, just a couple of days ago over this past week that uh, suggested in the um, late stages of the election, back in September, I think it was, the Democratic Senatorial uh, Campaign Committee decided that they were going to change their get-out-the-vote strategy from motivating people who would otherwise be inclined to vote for the Democrat to trying to approach Republicans and independents who they thought they could convince to vote for the Democrat. And, And this is a... I mean, this is just a bizarre strategy. We know, we know, essentially, that um, if Democrats get uh, the same type of numbers uh, to come out and vote like they did in 2012, Democrats are going to win. We also know that uh, in this time of deep polarization, it's that much harder to convince somebody to change their mind. I mean, when you've got to just convince somebody to go to the store as opposed to uh, to go to the store and buy something that they don't uh, generally want or are looking for, it's a much harder uh, a task. And so um, I, I, it seems to me this was indicative of a larger problem. But, uh, David, let's take a break. We'll talk more about this uh, when we come back because, of course, it wasn't just House races and senatorial races. We also lost some important governor races. And all of this, and we're going to be talking about it later in the program, all may be dwarfed by a a Supreme Court case when we talk about gutting Obamacare. But we will get to all that and more when we return. Cause you're a sky, cause you're a sky full of stars. I'm gonna give you my heart. Welcome back to Ring of Fire. I'm Sam Cedar here with David Bender. Now let's get back to our discussion of the Ring of Fire News of the Week and our analysis of this week's midterm elections. So, David, uh, when we broke, we were talking about, of course, um, the various postmortems for uh, Democrats across the country. And I think we're uh, more or less in agreement that uh, there were a lot of factors that were conspiring, ranging from voter suppression, but also uh, the failure of of Democrats to create a, nas- a national message that w- they could actually pursue. And, and I think including we- people who conspired, literally conspired. There's a lot of conspiracy going on with uh, dark money, independent expenditures at a record rate. You know, the yep. Koch brothers and Karl Rove had a field day as as you know, people forget they they wrote off Karl Rove for having failed so miserably in 2012, but he succeeded in 2010, and he succeeded again now. And and that dark money, that money that is not only Citizens United money, but it's basically this goes back, Sam, and this is a point I've been trying to make, and I just I really want to say this while we're together. This is not going to change 
until the Supreme Court decides that money is not speech. Right. And that is a decision that goes back to the mid-70s, the Buckley decision in the court. And if anybody who cares about this country is listening, that's what you ought to be thinking about, is what's going to happen on the Supreme Court. What happens if the Republicans get to do to the Supreme Court what they've just done to state legislatures and governorships and, and the Senate and the House, is lock in a majority, possibly for another generation, as they have then we're never going to see a chance to get money out of politics. And that's the only thing that's going to change the way this is playing out. We've got to overturn Buckley, and that is a long-term strategy between now and probably 2020, uh, 2020 foresight. But that's, that's a message I think a lot of people ought to be thinking about when they vote in 2016, 2018, 2020. And I, I hope we're all going to be beating that drum because that's how we're going to change this thing. You made a point before we broke about the governorships. They also control reapportionment. The Republicans, Chris Christie had a, a great day. And it looks like his surgery is working. He looked thinner, too, and happy. Although, uh, although well, i, I got to put one asterisk there, because uh, he specifically didn't want to give Scott Walker any money, uh, because Scott Walker, had Scott Walker lost, that would have ended his 2016 bid, but uh, Sheldon Adelson to the rescue, and uh, Scott Walker prevails. And 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 Christie grudgingly went in and campaigned for Scott Walker in the last mm. weekend. So so grudgingly, uh, he, he did not campaign against Andrew Cuomo. We we should note. But the the, the bottom line is these governorship pickups, uh, the legislature still more state legislatures flipping, uh, the most since the 1920s for the Republicans to control. It, it, it affects a lot of the lay of the land. I, and I, the thing that people need to remember is what we're going to see is Republican hubris. We always have, Sam. You and I are old enough to remember. Mm-hmm. I'm old enough to remember Grover Cleveland. But, it, but we, we remember that when Republicans get this kind of heady sense of power, Newt Gingrich had it. Uh, they had it in, in the last half of the Clinton administration when they impeached him is they overreach. They try to do things. If they try and do what you alluded to, if they try and overthrow uh, part of the uh, Affordable Care Act and throw people off their health insurance, or if they do what many of their members are talking about, which is the first hold hearings, they're going to be subpoenas flying like confetti in the next few years. If they try and hold hearings that lead to censuring, as they did Eric Holder, or impeaching, this president, as they did Bill Clinton, they will overreach. And the backlash will be equally historic, in my opinion. So I say bring it on, baby. Well, you know, I mean, and, and, and we'll, of course, we'll, we'll talk about this in, in, uh, in other stories in the news, including this, um, this surprise move by four members of the Supreme Court to, to take this uh, King, uh, King v. Burwell case, and we will talk about that later in the Any program. Any guess which four members, Sam? Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, the, the, the question's not going to be whether or not they're going to overreach. The question is whether or not they're going to do it in such a way that will they do it enough so that uh, the inclinations of President Obama that um, uh, you and I may ag- disagree with are stymied. And uh, one of those things, of course, I'm talking about is fast-track authority. Uh, we know that in the Senate, Republicans are coming in saying, we're going to push through this fast-track authority. Yep. Fast-track authority will allow the uh, basically call for a quick up-or-down vote by the Senate on... 90 days. Uh, 
90 days. On the trade bill, uh, specifically, we're talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership and it's sort of a cousin trade deal with the EU. This is a horrible bill and uh, a horrible uh, trade deal for from, from Americans. From the people who brought you NAFTA. Yes, but worse, far worse in, in many respects. Uh, but let's talk about that in, uh, in the next hour when we look forward to what may be, and one of those things could be, the dissolution of Obamacare and not at the hands of Republicans in the Senate or the House, but Republicans sitting on the Supreme Court. We'll be right back. We're talking, uh, of course, with David Bender, the political director of Progressive Voices and the esteemed co-host emeritus at Ring of Fire. Uh, We'll be back in the next hour with more news. When we come back, Howard Nations is going to tell us why infrastructure investment has almost completely disappeared in spite of the warnings from the country's top economists. I'm Mike Papantonio. You're listening to Ring of Fire. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Ring of Fire. I'm Mike Papantonio. Some of the best economists in the country have been saying for years that the best way to stimulate the economy is through infrastructure spending, but that advice has been largely ignored by politicians. I have Howard Nations with me to tell us why. Howard, the infrastructure story in, uh, in, in, throughout the nation, uh, Paul Krugman did a great piece in the New York Times. Could you talk about the issues, about how serious this lack of infrastructure, uh, uh, of us addressing infrastructure has really become? Well, Pap, in the past, we've had great success with infrastructure in this country. We've handled it in three different ways. Uh, First, the government built directly. We had the extraordinary event of the Panama Canal, and then the wonderful interstate highway system of the 50s that became the backbone of American growth, economic growth. Then the second way was we incentivized private sectors. Uh, in the 19th century, the government gave land grant to the big money people in the East to build the railroads. We ended up with a great railroad system as a result of that. And the third way is through loans uh, of the federal government, uh, joint venturing with the state and local governments to incentivize them and paying a portion to create infrastructure. And, and that story of pa- Paul Krugman's story in the New York Times uh, that you're talking about here says we got all of that wrong, didn't we? <laughs> we, yeah. we? We've reversed ourselves. Everything that we should have been doing, we did just the opposite. Absolutely. We, ha- we are now. The present status of in- infrastructure is the need is great. Uh, the cost of lo- loans is so incredibly low. It's, we need it to spur the economy. We need it for job creation. But Republican ideology simply will not permit it. We have plentiful cash. We have massive savings. Corporations are amassing cash that they could be investing, but instead they're buying back their own stock with it. And listen to this one. Banks that were bailed out by the American taxpayer are currently holding $2.7 trillion in excess reserves 
that they simply won't loan. They, they but Howard, could, but was, they choose wasn't not that, to. Wasn't that part of the deal? Didn't when we when we came and we we bailed out all of these incompetent thugs. I mean, they're part incompetent and they're part criminal. But when we bailed them out, wasn't the deal the reason we're bailing you out? Uh, you know, whoever whoever it was at the time, whether it's J.P. Morgan, whether it's Goldman Sachs, we're bailing you out, and we expect you to take this money and invest it into the economy, give it back to people who want to build businesses, give it back to people who want to expand the economy. And they said, oh, sure, we'll do that because we're up against the wall. Uh, just two things. A, don't put us in prison, and we've delivered on that. We certainly haven't put in prison. And B, simply give us as much money as we want with, without many strings attached. And we did that, too. And now right. they're holding almost $3 trillion that they did not give back. Is that correct? Right. right. One of the great frauds out of that whole debacle uh, was exactly what you're talking about, what the banks have done, holding $2.7 trillion and not making loans available. Uh, interest rates are too low for them to be making loans. They, they manipulate the funds instead. The obvious solution right well, now. Well, now, hey, Howard, talk about that just a little bit. People misunderstand when these interest rates go way, way down, all the ba- that's just fun money for the bank. Right. That, I mean, they, they just they can play games. With, and explain how that works. Well, what, what's happening is the, the, the banks, instead of loaning the money that they were given for virtually nothing, instead of loaning it to the public to stimulate investment, to stimulate spending, when Mr. and Mrs. Middle America spend money, it puts money back into the corporations. Corporations produce more products. They buy more things. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. But instead of doing that, the banks started buying up each other. The big banks, like Bank of America and all the other, the other big banks, we're going to get down to having five banks in this country eventually. They went out and started buying up their own industry. They bought out smaller banks. So they just... They, they took the money and used it all within their own industry and refused to loan it out to the American public and still refuse to loan it out to the American public, with the result being that the banks are becoming larger and larger and larger and the smaller banks are being bought up and, and uh, bought out. And so we're going to end up with the same thing. We, we're going to have very, very large banks, which are very, very, very powerful and which are, again, Way beyond too big to fail now. So, and so the local bank that you got that you want to do business with, your Citibank, that's right there in town. I mean, rather your not not Citibank. You don't want to do business with Citibank, <laughs> right. but your your local bank, your community right. bank. They're being bought up by the Goldman Sachs to where to where we don't even have options anymore, and they're using this money that taxpayers gave them to do this big buying spree, this frenzy that's taking on. And, uh, and and there's it, it, so what what does it mean when they don't reinvest into infrastructure? I mean, how does it work? How does the money go from the bank to building a road or a bridge? How does that how does that work? Well, when they don't invest in infrastructure, you get exactly what you have right now. You have huge transportation needs. Our transportation needs are their highways and bridges are dangerous. They are dangerous. This is not that we're trying to improve them. The civil engineers gave the rating of D-plus to our highways and bridges, and that was improvement over the previous grade. I mean, we're talking danger here. We're talking about the electric grid. 
We're talking about a huge looming problem in infrastructure, which is water supply. Water supply is being absolutely ignored. You, you see the prices go up on food because we have these huge droughts and, and they're not able to cope with it because there's not the proper water grid in this country. Part of infrastructure. That's where the money should be going. It's not going into there. The federal government borrows money so cheaply the interest rates on inflation and protected bonds has been actually negative. It's currently 0.4%. It's the perfect time for states and local governments to be taking money from the federal government to build the infrastructure. Now, there is infrastructure investment. There are roads, bridges, sewer, sewer repairs, there's everything you could possibly imagine that's being built right now. It's being built in Afghanistan, where we've spent $100 billion. It's being built on infrastructure in Iraq, where we've spent $61 billion to build highways, those same highways that ISIS is using right now to traverse the country. So the, the idea of spending money in America, no. The cost, it costs the government little. It creates jobs. It improves safety. It improves efficiency. Uh, it well, I remember, I remember the Democrats, uh, Howard, I remember the Democrats making some half-hearted attempt to come up with a stimulus program. Uh, it was uh, April or something like that. We started hearing that they were going to unveil this $300 billion transportation bill, and it was going to increase uh, highway funding by 22 percent, increase uh, mass transit by 70 percent. I, I, I it just disappeared. I didn't hear anything else about it. What the hell happened? Uh, the Republicans blocked it. Uh, the Republicans absolutely refuse to pass anything that Obama will get credit for. Now, the hypocrisy in this whole thing is that the Republicans talk a good game about having infrastructure. Uh, they say this is a place where we can definitely uh, cooperate. We can have full cooperation in infrastructure because government in infrastructure is so very, very important. Uh, and and uh, McConnell uh, says that infrastructure spending is popular on both sides of the aisle. Eric Cantor says this is something where we can work together. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce it favors it. The Alliance of American Manufacturers, huge supporters of public works. Yet this is one of the few times Republicans ever defy the U.S. Chamber. Yeah. In other words, uh, it's, they, not, it's not about making America better. It's about it's it's about just childish, childish toddler kind of politics. And as a result, our bridges are falling, our roads are in disrepair, our water system is in disrepair. We don't have an electric grid that can even deliver alternative energy like they have in Europe and Asia. And we are looking like a banana republic. Howard Nations, thank you for joining me. Okay. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks. Just ahead, attorney Ben Gordon is going to be here to talk about the misconduct of medical device manufacturer Smith & Nephew. I'm Mike Pabantonio. We'll be right back with more Ring of Fire. Welcome back to Ring of Fire. I'm Mike Papantonio. More than 7 million people living in the United States today have a hip or knee replacement. And as the baby boomers continue to age, that number is expected to increase dramatically in the next decade. 
and that means huge profits for the medical device industry. And just like everything else we've seen from the drug industry and device makers, it also means big, big dangers. Joining me now to talk about the dangers of these implants is attorney Ben Gordon. Ben, uh, I, you were involved with a settlement with a company called Smith & Nephew on uh, a hip uh, implant case. The, the thing that's troubling to me about this company is their criminal history. I, I, I looked down this list of their criminal involvement. Uh, UK-based medical device maker Smith Nephew uh, agrees to pay $32 million to settle a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and then they admit to bribing government employees and doctors uh, about the product. Um, they paid $16 million criminal fine to the Department of Justice and entered a deferred prosecution agreement. I mean... Yeah, they Listen, got a slap on is, the wrist. This is an ugly company. Yeah, they don't want to admit what they really did, so they say, we'll clean up our ways. we got our regulatory guys to say, we'll make a deal with the government, and you can come in and see what we're doing. They pay a nominal fine, and nobody finds out exactly what went on. They want to say that it had nothing to do with anything that mattered with respect to safety of these devices, and in reality, they've covered it up, and the government's allowed them to do so. Well, I mean, isn't okay, so you, you, you reached this deal... Uh, during okay, 2007, the DOJ, Department of Justice, the SEC, begin their investigation on this implant, Smith and Nephew. Uh, they they find they they at that point see that there's some defect not not just in the court in the criminal conduct, but they start seeing documents that should raise questions about the safety of this issue. You come into the picture at some point and tell us tell us about this Smith Nephew product, how bad it is how it is actually changing people's lives for the worse yeah, and, and how you reached a settlement here. It, well, we haven't actually settled with Smith & Nephew. The, you know, they're still fighting us. We're still fighting them. Smith & Nephew's product, you know, they have a series of bad products, one after another, and that's what led to all these criminal corrupt practices and, and contaminated devices. But they, they, they followed the other manufacturers like Depew, like Stryker. They copied them because they weren't getting good market share, and they created a series of these metal-on-metal devices because they were afraid they were being left behind by the others. And each of those devices in succession has caused problems to our clients, to patients out there in America, these metal liners that cause corrosion and, and destruction of tissue and bone, and they're continuing to do that. They recalled one of them in 2012. They recalled a limited part of the instructions for another one in late 2012, but their main one, the BHR resurfacing, is still on the market still out there hurting people okay they're here okay ben listen this is what i'm missing and i do this every day but i'm looking at this history department of justice basically the, the, the calls them criminals i mean they pay fines for corrupt practices act we know the product product's defective they all but you know if you just look at the documents it's right in the documents apparently that the product's defective the reason i assume that you had reached a settlement at this point are they still are they still saying, no, we don't have any responsibility, even though we've been cr hit criminally, even though we see the product's defective, even though doctors are saying it's defective, even though it's changing people's lives? Are they still saying, no, we don't want to settle this? Yeah, I mean, it's just the, the, the same old story with corporate America. They're drinking the Kool-Aid and they are denying everything. It's just they're in denial. They're claiming that the product is the best product on the market, that theirs is better in the good hands of the right surgeon, that their product doesn't hurt people. They didn't recall the BHR resurfacing device. And even though it's not being widely used anymore, they're afraid of what a recall will do. They recalled only the limited number, a very small number of these metallic 
inserts, these metal liners, three to 4,000 of them, the rest of them they left on the market. It's a practical matter. Most doctors know better than to use them, but they can still use them. They are still in the market and they are not admitting anything. Okay, so at trial, are you going to be able to show that this is a criminal corporation? I mean, is the jury going to see that these people uh, are criminals, that you they've know, been hit for criminal we're, acts? We're gonna, are you going to be able to present that in front of the jury exactly and say we're, we're dealing with a criminal? Huh? We've got it set up well in Memphis, Tennessee. We're set up with a state court judge. This is not a multi-district proceeding. We're set up in a venue that we think it's going to allow us in their backyard in Memphis, Tennessee, where they manufacture all these devices to do exactly that, to show that they were guilty of corrupt practices, of regulatory, uh, you know, false acts trying to, try, trying to create a window for these devices that they wouldn't be regulated. They call it the PMA, the pre-market approval, so that the FDA would give them a pass on this device and we wouldn't be able to get to them. If the judges in Tennessee allow our case to go forward, which we believe they will, then we're going to hopefully make all of this bring it to light so that the public sees what they did. All I ask is one thing. Will you let me try that case with you? Please. I mean, we, there was nothing we would like better than to have you try in that case. <laughs> okay. So, so, to, so to get this right, what, what is, I mean, I, as you know, you and I have tried cases. Let me, full disclosure, we've tried cases all over the country. But I, I honestly, this is one where I was shocked. Uh, and that was a genuine surprise when I, I didn't know how far along you were with, uh, with settlement here. But did anybody go to prison from Smith and Nephew when the Department of Justice caught them for all these criminal acts? No one. No, you know, they have not truly been held accountable. You know, when they do a deferred prosecution agreement and they say they're going to do a, 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 you know, a good practices act so that people can come in and make sure that they've cleaned up their ways, it's really, uh, you know, it's, it's nothing. It's completely milk toast. It's watered down. There's nobody that goes to jail. Nobody even gets asked the difficult questions in any kind of a public way so that America sees what they really knew and when they knew it. You know, they've had guys that have left the regulatory department who've, you know, gone off to Colorado and opened up their own, gone in with other manufacturing companies, and no one's ever heard from them again. So these people have not been held accountable, and it's up to us to take the hard depots to, to make sure they get seen by the public and that we get them in trial, which is the only thing that they're going to listen to. It's the only what thing kind really of injuries are you, What kind of injuries are you seeing here? You, you, I imagine, are doing this more than anybody in the country. What kind of injuries are you seeing? You know, when you compare this to the DePuASR, when you compare it to the Striker Rejuvenate that we've been involved in and all the other metallic products, it's worse than all of them. We've got cobalt and chromium numbers in the hundreds of parts per billion, 200, 300 parts per billion. We're, so much metal wear, Pap, that it is causing the tissue to turn black. It's causing it to become necrotic. The doctors are saying things like complete destruction of the, ab, uh, the abductor muscles, which are, which are your butt muscles, your gluteal muscles that hold the hip implant socket together. Those muscles are being completely eaten away, necrosed, necrotic tissue, and all the way to where it's going down into the bone and eating their femur bone. So how does a doctor even correct that? Once you, well, okay, they put, it in the they put this in the body, hopefully, because it's going to solve a problem. How does the doctor even solve this when you have the, the tissue being necrotic, where they have to cut the muscle and the tissue away? What, what does the doctor do then? You know, they really can't. If they don't catch it early enough, these people end up e either, you know, in wheelchairs or in bed for the rest of their lives. It eats so much of their tissue away, so much of the muscle and bone, that the people can't walk again. They, they, they're either on a walker or they're in a wheelchair or they're in a bed. So, 
unless the, the recall is early, unless the word gets out and the doctor is able to you know, pull this device out of their body before this massive tissue loss takes place, it's too late. Many of our clients, they've had to go in for follow-up dislocations, follow-up revision or re-revision surgeries. They have to keep going back in to take out these pseudotumors that grow in this cavity because of this metallic debris. If they don't get that stuff out early, it just keeps coming back and the people end up just with a, a horrible uh, uh, Ben, do future. doctors know, I mean, has, has this company just even held back from doctors what they knew about the product, about how dangerous it was when they sold it. Do doctors know about this? The doctors really are only just beginning to find it out. You know, we interviewed a doctor in Dallas, Texas here a few weeks ago who put in a thousand metal on metal devices, as many as just about anybody in the country. And he didn't know. He was told, he was sold a bill of goods. He said, look, metal on pile, the, 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 gotta understand how this works with these marketing people. They don't have a science degree. They don't have any kind of engineering background. They have a marketing degree, maybe a four year marketing degree. And they come in and say, look, doctor, we used to have metal on poly. We had a polyethylene, a plastic liner. Now we're giving you a metal on metal. We're giving you a metal liner in there. It sounded good. Cobalt and chromium, stronger than anything, that it'll last these people. If your metal on polys are lasting 15 years, doc, this will last 25 years or longer, last the rest of somebody's functional life. The doctors bought into it. They had no reason not to. They trusted the manufacturing industry who had these marketing people making the clinical and safety decisions. Ben, let's go get them. Okay, this is one you rarely hear. I mean, I, a lot of these are the first time I've heard these facts, but I'm amazed that they're not talking to you. I mean, basically have criminals unwilling to settle a case where they've caused thousands and thousands of injuries. Yeah, Let's and, and go they get think them. they're going to follow all the other metal manufacturers into, you know, settlement posture because they think that that's the easy way out. We're not going to let them here. We're going to hold them accountable. We're going to take them to trial in Memphis, Tennessee. Good. You're the guy to do that. Thank you for joining me, Ben. Thanks for helping us, Pat. When we come back, David Bender and I will be back to discuss even more of this past week's biggest news stories. I'm Sam Cedar, and we'll be right back with more Ring of Fire. I'm Mike Papantonio, and you've been listening to a free sample of Ring of Fire Radio. If you'd like to listen to the full show, subscribe to our weekly podcast at our website at ringoffireradio.com. It's your support that helps keep us on the air.